Hey guys, welcome to episode 76 of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Emma Loggins, Editor-in-Chief at Fanbolt.com. I'm Matt Rodriguez, the Owner and Chief Editor of Shakefire.com. And I'm Mike McKinney from Last One to Leave the Theater.com and ATLCW.tv. And we're going to start this week with talking about Netherworld because I went last night and it was just as amazing as I thought it was going to be. Um, although I was sad you guys weren't there to experience it with me. No, we were we were experiencing our own our own horror. Yes, we were watching a screening of the sh- the Snowman. So was that a which good by, horror? Which, by the or? way, they no. they never even mentioned the snowman in the film there, there's snowmen all over but nobody ever goes hey there's a bunch of snowmen yeah it seems like something you'd probably notice if there was a lot of snowmen around but I didn't see it so what do I know <laughs> um, I do want to give you guys a little bit of information on Netherworld in case you're interested in checking it out um, it is open now and it usually runs through about the first weekend in November um, but try to go see it before Halloween if you can. It's open every night of the, I should actually pull up the, the actual times while we're, while we're talking about this. Um, but they have two brand new um, installations this year and they're just as impressive as they always are. But they have one this year that like literally blew my mind. It's you wear 3D glasses in it. So when you get in, it's like everything just like pops up. And so, like, all of the paint on the wall, all of the, you know, kind of jump scares that you encounter as you're walking through, everything is just, it just comes to life, whether or not it's a person or not. And you get in these these rooms where you don't even realize there's a person um, because of how they've set up the, the 3D effect. And it's it's just terrifying. It's really, really scary. That's cool. I wonder how long it'll be before they start like implementing, you know, VR and augmented reality and that kind of stuff into the the experience. I wonder how like um, cuz I mean they have so many people that come through these. I don't know how how like cost effective it would be to do something like that. It would definitely be like a premium experience. Yeah. Um you have just kind of the simple like folding glasses for the um, for the three D mm-hmm. experience that you you know you toss in the bucket at the end, but um, it's that would be really cool to yeah. see. And with everything that they're going to be kind of doing moving forward, um, you know, with the um, the escape rooms they're doing and and all of that, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if they ended up doing something. Did either of you guys do the? Um I remember it was a couple years back for one of the Insidious movies where they had, it was like a whole uh, VR yep. experience thing where yeah, you basically was sit that the, down. Was you, that the one in Piedmont Park? I think it was, yeah. Yeah. It was like in a trailer? Yeah. Yeah. That was terrifying. That was cool. <laughs> that was really cool. Um, I could totally see them doing something like that. Um well, let me give you just a little bit of information on the two rooms, and then we'll we'll move on. Um, so this year you have Primal Scream. The primordial guardians have awakened to rip the evils of this earth with tooth, claw, thorn, stone, and bone. The green kingdoms have risen the dead with parasitic fungi and have sent colossal tree monsters into battle. Savage beast clans infect living humans, transforming them into animal hybrids, and elementals of stone and bone smash anything in their way. United in battle, the earth howls a primal screen. 
to crush both mankind and netherworld once and for all. So that is Primal Screen. The one that I just like blew my mind, the 3D one, is uh, Mr. Grindle's Funhouse of Horrors in 3D. Um, put on your 3D <laughs> glasses and experience demented clowns, bizarre monsters, and weird creatures from other worlds. Then go backstage at the attraction where you can find Mr. Grindle butchering and eating his less fortunate victims in a glory feast of horrors. Survivors will travel to the strange world that Mr. Grindle and his pals come from, a twisted mind-melting dimension swimming with surreal nightmares. Um, so that's just that name that's sounds my terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Yeah, Grindle. It's, um, yeah, it's it's uh, everything. If you're afraid of clowns, it's everything your nightmares are made of. <laughs> but it's uh, it's pretty freaking cool. Um, so that is it's open now um, through. Let's see, I still don't have the closing date. Okay, the last days will be November third, fourth, and fifth. Um, it's open nightly until um, the thirty first. So. 7.30 to 10.30 during the week, and then on Friday and Saturday nights from 7 p.m. to midnight. Get there early if you can, because the lines build up really quickly um, the later in the night it gets, and you might be waiting for a little bit unless you do the uh, the fast passes. Um, you can get speed passes for $55 any night, which will get you to the front of the line for both houses. Um, otherwise, uh, you can do... Uh, $25 for Primal Scream and $35 um, or $35 for both Primal Screen and Mr. Grindle's Fun House of Horrors. So check that out. It's definitely worth it. And this is the last uh, year at the current location. So it's kind of like the, the end of an era. Aww. Kind of, I'm sad about it. How, how long, <laughs> how long would you say they are? Um, like I mean, it, it depends. What I really like about Netherworld is they kind of space you out, um, whereas like other haunted houses, you um, you get sent through in groups and you can kind of see what's coming. But Netherworld takes you know like care of making sure that everyone's kind of timed to where you don't see what's coming. So it's like way more terrifying. Um, but that being said, if you run through it um, versus you know um, carefully walking through like I do and trying to you know figure out where a person's going to jump out at you. Um, I would give it about an hour for both of them. Um, and you're, you also have like actors that are walking around, you know, in the parking lot that yeah. you can take pictures with. And there's, there's other things you can do outside too. Um, but that being said, that line, I don't even know how long it gets. Um, so get there like at seven thirty, um, if, if you can and be ready to, to go in or do the speed pass. That's a, that's a really great, um, it's like 20 bucks more. It gets you to the front of the line. It's awesome. I still remember one of my favorite things from one of the times I went to Netherworld. It wasn't even the haunted house itself. It was right after because they would have a couple of actors like outside by the exits scaring people one last time come as they came out of the haunted house. And it was, it yep. was just great just to stand there and just watch them scare all these people. <laughs> they do that at Netherworld too, yeah. so it's uh, you kind of get you can just be entertained by standing in the parking lot watching people uh, get terrified. Um, but but yeah, so check that out. Um, that's going on now. Um, next up, we we all got together last Friday night for a little for a little movie viewing of a, a new Netflix uh, film that I'm going to let Mike talk about a little bit because I knew nothing about it until. We watched it at Mike's suggestion last Friday. 
All right. Well, the movie Watch, which is available on Netflix, is actually playing right now in Atlanta at uh, Landmark Midtown, um, is the Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected. And it's about an estranged family, uh, two brothers and one sister, who gather in New York for an event celebrating their father, um, who's played by Dustin Hoffman, who's this sculptor, and he's very opinionated. Um, Danny, who's played by Adam Sandler, is the oldest son, who's recently separated from who's a recently separated father whose daughter Eliza played by Grace Van Patten is about to leave for college you have Jean uh, Elizabeth Marvel the troubled daughter is an office manager who's never gotten over a broken childhood caused by her parents divorce and you have Matthew played by Ben Stiller the youngest son a highly successful money manager that's moved to Los Angeles mostly to get away from his family and uh, they all gather back together uh, because their uh, father is going to be honored at a, uh, a banquet, I mean, at, at a, a get-together and uh, an opening. And uh, so that's that's what it's about. It was a dysfunctional family, though. Yeah, v- <laughs> very dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool, though. Um, I mean, this, I feel like, is, is why our Netflix prices are going up, because you see that, you know, Netflix is doing these really like great quality films with really solid cast and it's like oh that's why our premiums are going up that's all right yeah um but it's yeah it's it really was written by uh, it was written and directed by noah uh, bambach who's who's done some really good work um and then, then this cast you know that's the thing about uh, uh i forgot to mention that emma thompson plays um uh, dustin hoffman's current wife because he's gone through a lot of wives in his lifetime um, and she is basically uh, an alcoholic um, person that uh, has a little trouble keeping up. <laughs> well, it's a really good movie, and if you guys have Netflix, you have no excuse not to watch it. So it's there waiting yeah. for you. Yeah, Dustin, Dustin Hoffman is just phenomenal. As the, as the you know, he's kind of this attention-hungry uh, patriarch that um, basically. Uh, will talk over all his children um, uh, so that having a conversation with him is almost worthless because it, he's not going to listen to you. He's only going to um, put the spotlight back on himself. Right, right. And, and, it's, and you know, it's both Stiller and, and Sandler are really good in this film, which always pisses me off because Adam Sandler can be a really good actor and I wish he would quit doing the, the crappy comedies that he does and do more of this stuff, this work, because he's so good in it. But he's he's got to yeah. take his vacations. I know. <laughs> he's got to he's got to pay his friends. This is true. <laughs> it's it's you know it's partially it's partially my my uh, my dad's fault <laughs> because he taught. Um, I'm not going to remember the guy's name. He one of the guys that directs a lot of Sandler's films is a former student of my dad's, and. Uh, um, he went on to have a fairly successful acting career, but now he's directing really bad Adam Sandler movies. <laughs> well, that's that. We'll just blame your dad then. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, thanks, Mike. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> um, well, next up, I have um, another interview in the the series of trailblazing women in film um, that I was doing on my other site, uh, womensbusinessdaily.com. So this week we have an interview with Callie Corey, who is um, not only the, the series creator, show creator for Nashville, um, but also the writer for Thelma and Louise. So she's been in Hollywood for, for a minute, just, just been around for a little bit. 
Um, but it's a, it's a really kind of interesting story about how she came to Hollywood and has everything she's really done over the years. Um, she followed Thelma and Louise with 1995, Something to Talk About with Julia Roberts and Dennis Quaid and Robert Duvall, and then made her directorial debut with Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood with uh, Sandra Bullock and Ashley Judd. Uh, which she also adopted for the screen. In 2006, um, she collaborated with legendary television producer uh, Stephen Boko, hopefully I'm saying that right, and uh, wrote and directed the television drama Hollis and Ray. So, been pretty successful and done some pretty cool stuff, and I had a really interesting conversation with her, not only about how she came to Hollywood and, you know, whether success kind of caught her off guard, because Thelma and Louise was her very first project, which is crazy to think about something happening, you know, that quickly, and um, I can't imagine what what my reaction would be to something like that, so it was kind of cool to, to talk to her about that and um, how she didn't really have to pitch the project, she just got the script to a few people, met with those people, and uh, things things started happening. That's crazy. Um, it, it is crazy. It's a, it's a great story. Um, but then we also kind of talked about Nashville a little bit and about really the fans' reaction to uh, some things that have happened more recently in the series and kind of dealing with that, that backlash on social media and how much you really let that kind of get to you or sink in and, and how, you, how you take that. Um, so with all of that being said, uh, here is my interview with Callie Corey, writer of Thelma and Louise and show creator for Nashville. I was, I definitely want to talk to you about your, how you really made the decision to kind of dive into the world of writing and how you got started because, um, coming into this industry and then having such a huge success right off the bat. I mean, uh, can you, can you talk to me a little bit about how, how you kind of came into Hollywood? Well, when I moved to Hollywood, I was I moved there, you know, a few years after college, where I'd been a theater major, and then after college, I'd lived in Nashville, and I had worked at a theater here until it closed, and then some children's theater and stuff like that, and then thought, of course, I don't want to be an actress. That's ridiculous, and stopped, and then thought, well, maybe I do, and I moved to L.A. and started studying acting again, and then you know, realized again, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so so um, I got into production at that point, and that's when I started kind of really learning a little bit about how to filmmaking worked. Not so much the business, but then I just got a really good idea for a script, and I thought, well, what the hell, I'll try to write it and see what happens, and that was film and movies, and you know, so I kind of got shot out of a cannon a little bit, you know. <laughs> I'll see if I can write something, and yes, I can. Did the the success with that surprise you at all or catch you off guard with it being, like, your, your first oh, project? of course. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think that there's any possible way I would have ever thought going into it that it would turn into something that, you know, people are still referencing now 26 years later what was uh what was that pitch process like for you you know not having um you know a a long extensive resume and this being your first project did you have any issues pitching it or were you was it received I didn't I, I didn't really pitch it you know I mean I uh 
the script got to a few people and I met with those few people and you know early on it got to Mimi Polk who was Ridley's person at the time and so it wasn't like I went all over town pitching it like you know there were only three or four places that's awesome yeah Uh uh, what is uh is your your process with uh you know writing a film versus writing for for a TV series or, or coming up with that concept? Can you talk to me a little bit about the differences between your your approach with uh, film and television? Well, I mean, television is completely different in that you, once once you start, I mean, the format is very different. You know, right. what I mean, you've got you know the difference between doing an uninterrupted feature film and a and a network television show that's interrupted by commercials and all of that. They're very, very different animals. And then the schedule of a TV show where you're having to basically, excuse me, come up with, uh, you know, 22 scripts a year in a very limited amount of time with writing with, you know, a team of people. It's just a, completely different animal right and the thing the thing i like about it is you know you get to really explore characters and grow them and change them and put them in all kinds of different situations over a long period of time if you're lucky right as we have as we have been on this show um so that's really fun i really enjoy that aspect do you find one um, more satisfying than the other, um, especially with getting to explore the, the lifelines of these characters, like on, on Nashville, and really, you know, uh, grow with them and, and see them grow? I, I do. I mean, I right now I really do enjoy television just because, you know, I, I think what you can get made in the feature film world is so uh, limited. Right. You know, especially for projects that are directed at women, you know, it's just, there's just not that many places that are willing to, you know, really spend any money on pictures that are directed towards women. Now that's not to say they won't spend money on pictures that are directed towards girls, right? you know, young women, because they can get those big weekend numbers. But, you know, it's a business that's driven by that. Right. And, you know, television is not. So right now, long-form television is kind of where it's at for, for me. Do you feel like, um, especially I feel like in the, the, the television space and, um, being a being a creator in that space, there's not. I, I feel like it's more of a, a man dominated industry, um, for sure. Um, do you feel like you've had any any challenges specifically related to being a female in that space? Or I, I think you know, I think all women in this business face the same challenge, and that is just limited. You know, limited access. Right. Um, so, you know. I think it's somewhat better for women because I think television has typically been more directed at women or or else, let me put it this way, there's a, there's a solid female audience out there that can deliver for you week after week after week, whereas in the feature film business, that does not exist. Right. So, so, um, but, you know, you know, like most businesses, it's male dominated. Right. Like I'm trying to think of one business besides cosmetics or <laughs> something, you know. 
right. uh, foundation garments, <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> that, that isn't male dominated. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I don't know that we're, we're being singled out, but, you know, clearly the numbers based on, you know, the proportion of women to men in the population, the numbers, you know, don't lie. Right, right. Um, well, working on on Nashville and kind of coming into to each new new season that you have on it, um, kind of, I'm I'm curious from like a creative perspective, keeping things fresh and new and um, interesting for the audiences. Do you have kind of a process you go through, or um, talk to me a little bit about just the challenge of keeping everything fresh season to season? Well, you know, at the beginning of the season, we all sit down together and and start you know, kind of hammering out a direction, you know, an overall arc for the season of where we want to start everybody and where we want them to end up. And, you know, we have to go back and look and see if we've done that before or if we have done it before. Can we do it in a way that is different and doesn't feel like we're repeating the same thing? You know, right. we're in a we're t- we're in a business. We're telling a story of about a business that, you know, is in a big period of change itself. Right. And, and uh, you know, so we try to address those challenges. And career, careers in these businesses wax and wane, and, you know, you're up one minute and the next you're down. So, you know, it, it it's easy to kind of, like, ride those waves and, put people in the normal situations of life and just try to heighten them dramatically and, you know, just make the characters interesting enough that you care what happens to them. Definitely. Definitely. When you, um, when you started the series, did you know, uh, where you wanted, where you eventually want to get to with the characters? Like, do you know in your mind how this series will end? Mm-hmm. Well, no, because, you know, you never know from one, season to the next if you're gonna even be there to do it so we're we're only just now in year six starting to think well you know if we have to wrap this thing up how are we going to do it so we're just now starting to like take that into our consciousness because six seasons is long for a show and, you know, we'll, we'll just see, you know, I mean, I don't know that we're going to, that this is our last season, but, um, you know, it could be, I guess, depending on, you know, our fortunes and ratings and stuff like that. So only because we've been out here so long, right? kind of in this territory, we just, being realistic, we just, we just want to like start thinking if if we had to wrap it up, what way would we do that? But right. also, if we don't have to wrap it up, then what are we going to do? Right. Kind of having like both paths determined because I mean, yeah. for the fan base, I think it's so rewarding when you know if you if you don't get picked up for another season and then you're still able to to satisfy the fans with that ending, but then also be prepared for coming back for another season and not you know exactly. not ending on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, and, I'm, and we, you know, we killed off one of our major characters. So, you know, the fans are all still coming to terms with that. Some of, some of them just can't come, come to terms with it. And I understand that, you know, yeah. uh, if she was a beloved kind of tentpole character and it was a blow, but, you know, we were, 
we were kind of in a situation where, you know, we didn't want to hold her hostage, the actress. <laughs> right. You know, so <clears throat> she's at a point in her career where she wanted to, she had a lot of other opportunities to do things she wanted to do, and we didn't want to hold her back from that. So, right. Well, reluctantly, I mean, I think she was as reluctant to leave, but didn't, you know, had, had, you know, been turning things down for years that would have been really exciting for her to get to do. So, you know, we kind of split the difference. And, you know, it wasn't something we loved doing. Right. Me. <laughs> well, kind of on that note, too, I know with um, some shows, the, the fan bases, especially on social media, can, can really get brutal. And have you experienced that all with Nashville? And if so, like, how do you kind of um, separate yourself from that and keep yourself, you know, um, you know, not paying attention to any of the the negativity from fans that may be upset about certain decisions when, you know, you're, you're the story well, creator. You know, here's the thing. I completely understand why they would be upset. There's no question that it's, you know, not just, you know, it's, it's not what I would have wanted. Right. You know, I totally get it. I mean, I don't think that there's any way that you can say, Oh yeah, let's do this. It's, how great, you know? Right. She's one of our favorite actresses. She's kind of the center of the show, you know? I, I mean, I totally get it. And, you know, I mean, fans are, look, there's no way you can be in the television business and not have people hate what you do. I mean, I see stuff all the time that I can't stand. You know, I don't understand right. how it got made. I don't know why anybody watches it, you know? And I know that there are going to be people who feel that way about our show. That's just the way it is. You know, you can't please everybody. And a lot of times you can't please the people that you were pleasing because of decisions like the one we were put in. And, and uh, you know, it's just we're doing our best. Right. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, I get it. I get I yell at the television. So. <laughs> well, too, I mean, when you're... But, but at the same time... There's also this part of me that's kind of like, you know, given what's going on around the world and and what's happening in our society, this is really so, such a microscopic dot right? in the overall scale of things that I don't get, I, I think there are a lot of other things to be upset about besides this, right. you know? I mean, for me and the fans, it's like, these are not problems, you know? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, ultimately, I think that, you know, in any form of art, if it, if you love it or if you hate it, it it's emotion that is evoked on either end of the spectrum, I think is good art. So even if the fans are upset right. about something, they're upset about it because they fell in love with a character because right. that character was made so awesome, you know? Right. And, you know, at the same, and, and, but speaking to that, you know, I think it's interesting when people do things you hate. I mean, you know, I have friends that of many, many years that sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to fucking murder them, you know? <laughs> right. And, and other times you're like, oh my God, I cannot imagine my life without this person in it. Right. And so I think, you know, putting, putting people through those kind of relationships with characters is not very different than you go through with real life. I mean, who do you never have conflict with? Exactly. Know? So, you know, who do you never disagree with? 
Right. You always understand exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. You have to have that to make for a good story. You have to have conflict. Right. I mean, we get a lot of, I just want to see them happy. And you think to yourself, no, you don't. That wouldn't be a good show if everyone was happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How long do you watch that? Exactly. Um, Well, for anyone that's, uh, you know, looking to kind of pursue a career in writing for for either film or television, what advice would you offer them? You know, I I guess I would have to say, you know, perseverance, one, and knowing that literally nine and a half times out of ten, you're going to get no for an answer, and you have to like not let that be the thing that determines whether or not you keep going. Right. And, you know, you have to be prepared for disappointment and you have to be prepared for the idea that, you know, you're not going to get the most perfect version of everything you want to do. And, you know, and that you're going to work yourself to states of exhaustion that you didn't even think were possible. And, you know, it's a very hard, challenging, demanding, frustrating business. Right. And with, with moments of absurdity and complete joy, you know? So it's, uh, it's not boring. I guess I would say it that way. (laughs) Um, But I would say, you know, you should really try to stick to writing what you love, writing what you want to see. Right. You know, don't try to follow the market. Right. You know, if you see a show that you really like, don't go, I want to make a show just like that. Because somebody's already making that show. And that was my interview. Well done, Emma. Thank you. Well, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Nashville. That's one of my my go to shows. Um, so it's very interesting to get her take on on all that went on when uh, when uh, Connie Britton left the show because she was the one, the main character of that show. Everything revolved around her character, um, and it's carried on after uh, she left. But it's still it's still kind of is a sore spot for a lot of fans. Right. I mean, it's it's that way when any character leaves a TV show. If they're, you know, a main character or a beloved character, fans are never going to be happy about that. Glenn! I mean, <laughs> exactly. And Abraham. <laughs> and Abraham. Or, like, anything on Game of Thrones. Although, oh, yeah. in, in Game of Thrones, that's really not... I mean, it's, it, you, it's in a, Walking it's Dead, too. It's to be too, expected in Game of Thrones. Yeah, you just can't get attached to to any character and they've made that kind of known but with shows like Nashville you don't necessarily expect that you're yeah. going to you know lose a lead character um, but it's it's like I said you know to her when I was when I was interviewing her if you love something or you hate it that means you're doing something right because you're invoking you know either a, a strong emotion either way so no one's gonna watch a show where everyone lives happily ever after every week and there's no conflict um, as much as you want your favorite characters to get together, once they do get together, then that kind of tension is gone. And like, what do you, I mean, 
it's if you really think about it, if you're a fan that just wants your favorite characters together, it's never like as satisfying once they're actually together. Yeah, I mean, and look at look at Moonlighting, which you know was the that first year especially was such a great show because of the sexual tension between the two main characters, and then when they actually did hook up, the show kind of went downhill. Same thing for uh, 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 Northern Exposure. Uh, same same exact thing where uh, you know the doctor and, and Maggie uh, were always flirting and you always wanted to be together and then when they did hook up boy that show just went crashing down yeah that's it's really what makes so many of those shows I mean I would argue almost any CW show or Warner Brothers show or um, even my beloved Roswell um, which was I still loved all the way through to the end um, but I think in most cases when your when your lead characters get together and the entire relationship premise for them is that they can't be together for some reason it's just never as magical after after they get together but well in the case of Nashville I mean that that show is already even before that had a lot of heartbreak I mean there's a lot of things that went on in that show um, and so it wasn't it it it, it wasn't like it was a happy show and then all of a sudden somebody died and, you know, it, it just changed the nature of the show. No, the show was always a drama and it was always a lot of heartache. I mean, my gosh, you're singing country songs. you got to have heartache if you're singing country it's songs. True. There's never like a happy country song. Like, like they're all about either like breakups, someone dying, drinking whiskey because someone either broke up with you or died. Like everything is like about heartache and sorrow. Or, or, or going out and and, and destroying the, the guy's truck. Yeah, <laughs> Carrie Underwood. <laughs> totally. Um, well, uh, moving moving right along into our next segment uh, for Box speaking Office. of heartbreak. <laughs> yeah, speaking of heartbreak, poor Blade Runner twenty forty nine. So this uh, this box office this weekend was home. Oh, it hurts me to like look at these numbers. Um, so Blade Runner fell to second, and beating it, w- making almost what Blade Runner made in its first week, is um, a Happy Death Day came in at uh, 26 million, and it only had a production budget of 4.8 million. Uh, Blade Runner fell to second with 15.4 million. Of course, it was a production budget of 150 million, um, and The Foreigner came in third with 13 million. And um, rounding out the top five, it in fourth, and the mountain between us in fifth. So, um, yeah, but you you told it the, the biggest heartbreak. Oh, Professor what? Marston and the Wonder oh, Woman. Oh my God! Yeah, okay. It was Coming in one thousand two hundred. It was in one thousand two hundred twenty-nine theaters, and it yeah. did only seven hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars. Yeah, coming it in averaged, at fourteenth. Yeah, six hundred dollars a theater. Well, there was like no promotion for that movie whatsoever. There, there really wasn't, and it felt and more kind of like an indie release and than it's it such did. A weird movie to promote as well. So, like, it's such a hard yeah. movie to promote. Like, yeah, it was never going to do like well. <laughs> it's it's not a movie you take your kids to either. No. Um, so, and you know, fans of Wonder Woman, um, I feel like obviously there's the the adults that that love wonder woman but so many of the kids you know and and the little girls that saw that movie and just were so inspired by her um and were a huge part of the box office success of that film um 
parents can't take those kids to go see this film. Like, they just can't. Um, so I, I'm not horribly surprised that it didn't do well, but I'm surprised it did this badly. Um, I, it seem, it's unfair, but um, I don't know. Did you make any estimates for this one, Mike? Or is this about what you thought it would do? I, I didn't think it would do this bad. I don't bad, think anybody no. thought it would do this bad. You know, I also did, I thought Death Day, I remember saying that Happy Death Day would do around 20. It would be number one, but I didn't think it would do that well. Um, and I think it actually might have legs because of the comedic aspect to it. I think it's going to probably have pretty good word of mouth, um, especially with Halloween coming up. But uh, I, I did not think, I mean, that the, Professor Marston is like, for that many theaters, for it to be that bad, it's, that's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wonder, even if they had done um, more promotions for it, like how much that would have really affected yeah. it. Because again, the content of it is so inappropriate for I mean, younger even, audiences. Even the title, like Professor Martian and the Wonder Woman, that's it's a it's hard a sell title. on the title too. So. Yeah. It's a very clunky title. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, one of you guys said Blade Runner was going to have legs. Um, who was yeah. that? Was that, I think I was said that you, that. Matt? Yeah. <laughs> Do you still think that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically on par for Arrival, which was, you know, the director's last film. So. Fair enough. And, I mean, it's doing all right overseas. It's almost at $100 million overseas, so it's already passed its, its budget in total. That's good. So, I mean, I mean the first film never did that great anyway so a little bit hey, here's is, something that was brought up by some people so yeah. here's something that was brought up by by uh, some some critics the, the fact that um there are almost no asians in that film whereas if you watch the first blade runner there's a ton of asians in the film i mean I, you know that's one something that I think is is lacking in in Blade, this Blade, Blade Runner is you know because it's got we've got we see the all the advertising that's in Chinese and and even when when they're the guy's searching the database he's searching his, and he's searching through a database that's in Chinese um, I guess Mandarin I shouldn't say Chinese Mandarin um, but there's almost no Asians in this film in Blade Runner 2049. And I thought that was really lacking. Uh, I, now that I think back at it, I didn't really notice it um, at the time I was watching it. But what do you guys think about that? They yeah, should've, it's. Um... They should have brought um, Benedict Wong back because I mean he, he, they used him for one of the uh, the short films, you know, that I mentioned on the one on our earlier podcast. Um, he was right. the focus in one of the short films, and like it would have been cool to see him in the actual film. But it was so prevalent in the in the first one. Yeah. And then this is supposed to be later, so you would think, what, is there some sort of plague that's run through only Asian people or something? I mean it's just it's just a little weird. It's been so it long since I've seen the first film. I barely even remember it. Well, even just with all of the, the kind of product um the, yeah. all of the kind of in movie advertising and everything being, you know, it just it seems like you would have agents in it that's it's not something i i i mean i don't think that's discouraging people from going to see it because it's not really something that gets highlighted in the trailer whether there is or isn't um but but yeah it's uh that's weird 
I wonder why. I wonder if it was something that they just didn't think about or if it was a conscious decision for some reason. And, and if you think about all the, the films that are aimed at China, you know, with, yeah. the, with, with the, you know, the stuff that is so obvious where, you know, uh, James, was it James Bond where they went to China? No, or was, or was it, uh, what was it, uh, was it? I mean, it's, I don't remember. It was one of the big movies where movie there was a couple of scenes that were in China, and it's just like there's no reason for them to be in China, but only because they're trying to sell it to China. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, there's really no. I mean, there's no good reason. It, they, it, it, that's just weird. I don't know why they wouldn't have, wouldn't have done that. I, I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At um, least it is still doing really well. It is. It is still doing really well, um, and it's going to be doing really well through through Halloween yeah. for sure. Um, the, the big question is with next week though, is it is it this um, Friday the, the Medea Halloween comes out? Yeah, yep. that's this week. So that did really, really surprisingly well last year, like ridiculously well. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects, like how, how it does in comparison to last year and how it affects the other horror movies that are out. Do you guys have any kind of predictions on that? I haven't seen a Medea movie in god knows how long so i have no idea i mean they do do well i mean that's why he keeps making them so i wouldn't be surprised if it does well um i'm guessing it's going to be number one um and i'm guessing in the i don't know 17 uh, 19 million range um and you know it, it's funny because we all got invited to the red carpet to interview tyler perry and some of the other stars of the film and some celebrities uh, but they weren't going to let us go in and see the movie. Uh, Tyler Perry, uh, Perry doesn't screen a movie, any of his movies for, for critics. Um, but I, I think it'll do, do rather well. Um, it's still, this is still going to be a kind of a low box office weekend, even though we've got about a billion films coming out. And that's probably one of the reasons why, is because there are so many films coming out. Right, right. Well, on that note, um, before we jump into our film review of Only the Brave, um, do you guys have any predictions on how well that film will do this weekend? Uh, I don't know. I think it'll do reasonably well. I mean, it's a good movie. It's doing well with critics, at least, so I think that'll kind of bump it up a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I still think it's going to be, I'm going to say probably third behind... Happy Death Day and um, Medea. See, we got it. We've got the movie that they also didn't screen for critics, and they're not even doing a Thursday night screening. Geostorm. Oh yeah, I even completely oh. forgot about that. Yeah, well, and I think that's gonna be I bad. Think, <laughs> yeah, it is gonna be bad, but I still think Geostorm will come in third. Um, I think it'll do probably around um, I don't know nine to. Nine to ten million dollars. I think only Brave will do around nine, um, and I think then Blade Runner will be fourth. And then the movie that Matt and I will talk about, uh, The Snowman, um, will probably come in after Blade Runner around seven or eight. Um, it's still going to have legs, and it could pop in anywhere in there just because of Halloween's coming up. But snowmen don't have legs. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, moving right along, let's head into our film review of Only the Brave. Um, which one of you guys want to set that one up? I'll take it. Why not? Do it. Um, 
so only the brave follows an elite crew of firefighters in um, Arizona who are basically they're called um, they're battling for the title of hotshots, which are basically like the top top firefighters. Um, they fight uh, the wildfires basically, and so it's this crew. They're really good guys um, who are. You know, they have been trying and trying to get approved to be hot shots, to be the best. And so it's them, you know, working towards that goal and then basically fighting these fires in um, the Arizona countryside. So um, the film follows uh, Miles Teller. He's like kind of the main focus. Um, he's this new recruit, basically, who. Um, He's a screw-up in his life, um, he's a drug addict, and he's trying to get clean because he just had a kid, and so he decides to join, you know, these firefighters and try to turn his life around. And so it's just him being ingrained with these guys who are really, really close with each other, and, you know, learning this, this trade of fighting wildfires. It's a really good movie. That is a really good movie. Um... And I don't want to. I don't want to like spoil the ending or anything. No, but I. I. It. It is based on a true story. So if you're familiar with the true story, um, you'll know what happens. Yeah. And, and I didn't know what was going to happen. So. No, I did not either. <laughs> yeah. Mike apparently did, but we, Matt and I did not. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's the the Yarnell Hill fire. Yeah. Is what it, uh, the the last uh, event is. Which is a very famous uh, wildfire. Uh, well, let's let's dive straight on in on a scale of one to five. How bored were you? Um, I wasn't bored. I at wasn't all. bored at yeah. all. Yeah. No, you know, like I, I pretty much I knew nothing about you know fighting wildfires. So the film I found the film to be very interesting because it does teach you a lot about you know the things the kind of tasks they have to go through to fight these wildfires and train to fight them so i found all that really interesting yeah i give it i give it a one um i wasn't bored uh i mean it was just a really interesting story and there's some great characters it's it's almost a even though the emphasis on josh brolin and miles taylor um josh brolin plays the the supervisor of the group he's the main guy um, and he's, his character is married to uh, Jennifer Connelly's character. Um, and there's some really good background on them that we don't find out about until near the end of the movie. Um, but I, I wasn't bored at all. I, I know a little, I guess I went into it knowing about the, 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 the hill, Yarnell Hill fire. And also, I don't know whether it's through movies or TV shows or something, but I was was pretty knowledgeable in what they were trying to do, especially like uh, setting the the, the backfires, um, you know, to try to burn out the vegetation before the fire actually comes, so it can't feed on it. Um, stuff like the you know checking the air temperature because the hotter the air, the more powerful the fire is because it just feeds on itself basically and makes it makes it even hotter. Um, so I kind of knew some of this stuff, but I still found it really really interesting and. It helps that these characters are really there's a lot of the characters in this film are really well fleshed out, and so you get to really know them and you get to really um, know where they're coming from and and actually you know you you kind of fall in love with some of them because 
they are such good guys and they're a lot of fun. Um, and that that's the other thing that that this you know the Atlanta Falcons talk about brotherhood and this 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 gang of firefighters certainly uh, had the brotherhood down uh, big time. Yeah, they were they were definitely a family, and like you said. Um, by, I mean, by the end of the film, you're in love with everyone on that crew. You know, everyone is is doing a job that is incredibly risky and and risking their lives for, you know, to keep town safe, to keep people safe, to, to save a, a famous tree um, and, keep, and keep it safe because it has so much meaning to the town. Um, but just putting their lives on the line to contain these fires and try to stop them. I had no idea that that was even something that, that you could do, that you could go in and kind of do a controlled burn to reduce vegetation so that it wouldn't feed on that. Um, so it was kind of educational too, from that standpoint of seeing how, you know, you actually tackle something that's a huge fire. Like what can you possibly do when a fire is that big? I didn't think you could really do anything. Um, but, uh, it, it was cool to, to see that process. Um, I would also give it a one on the boredom scale. It's a long film. It's like two hours and 13 minutes, I think, two hours and 11 minutes, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so I kind of went into it thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to, like, I'm going to be starving when I get out of this. <laughs> but um, Bathroom break. You, bathroom breaks. Yeah, all, all of that. Um, but I I was, I I wasn't conscious of the, the time at all. It, it didn't feel like it drug on at any point, and it felt like it was um, the, the length that it should be. Uh, moving right along to the eye rolling category, I would also give this one a one. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no eye rolling at all with it. Um, you know, it's a solid drama. It's very serious at times, and they're joking around too because you know it is this brotherhood of guys. So you know, you really get to see them interact and fool around with each other as serious as they are at times. But um, yeah, there's no real eye rolling to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's a it's a well constructed film. It really is because you get, really get to know the characters, but we also get there's a lot of action sequences also because um, there's a number of fires that go to fight, um, and uh, you know there's also uh, Miles Teller being the new recruit, basically, um, and and when he first starts out, he's not in shape and he doesn't. Uh, doesn't know any of the lingo or, or any of this stuff and so he's basically um, picked on a lot um, early on in the film uh, but it's just a well told uh, uh, story now that you mention it I will say I did roll my eyes at Miles Teller's blonde hair <laughs> yeah that was that a was, little weird that was weird <laughs> I'm he, not sure that's his color he cannot pull off blonde hair so yeah yeah, but don't you think that that's kind of what he was? Because because Miles Teller's character is, you know, and they show him early on, he's basically a pothead, and and there's implication that he does other drugs also, though he he says he's never used a needle. Um, but there's an implication that the guy's, you know, he's living in his, basically in his mom's basement, you know, on a couch, and is not doing anything. He's getting into bar fights, getting thrown in jail, and uh, you know, it it just it kind of said to me that he's kind of a punk. Are you saying you know? all yeah. lawns are potheads and punks? No, the people that have got their Watch hair dyed, like I, he does. I, I have my hair dyed, bleach blonde. And, uh, so I don't yeah, know what you're trying to say here, Mike. Yeah, but you don't have it badly dyed like he had with this weird color, two colors. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, I think my favorite thing about this film, you know, kind of mentioning how 
you know, uh, Miles Teller's character gets picked on in the beginning. It's really kind of seeing the evolution of that bond, you know, having him come in as a new guy who does get picked on. And then eventually, you know, the guys accept him and how that relationship grows. And it's really how your bond with the characters grow to, grows, too. Um, well, so I was glad especially that with um, him and Taylor Kitsch, because it's oh, Taylor yeah. Kitsch. He's the one who's mostly picking on him on Miles right. Teller at the beginning. And then they're the two that become the closest by the end of right. it. So it's, that was a really cool dynamic. It was, I loved that. Um, so now the really hard question, um, best and worst performance. What, what would you guys, uh, who would you guys give that to? I'd give the best to Josh Brolin. Um, I really enjoyed his performance, him taking the lead of, you know, this group of guys and just, you know, his presence among them was just amazing. And so everybody does a good job in this film, but um, I'd give him the edge. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I, I, I honestly don't have a pick for worst actor. I think the, the, the entire crew did such yeah. a, a good job and um, there was nothing that stood out to me as like, oh, that that was not somebody that should be in this or that's not how that should have been acted. One um, thing I will say about worst actor, and it's nothing on the actor's performance, more along the lines of the story itself, was um, basically, you know, before there's like there's slots opening for on this fire team. And before Miles Teller's character comes in, there's this other kid who comes in and interviews with Josh Brolin and, you know, just to kind of set the scene and set the characters up. And then, you know, it turns out he's there in the end, too, and, like, I had no idea that he also joined the squad and stuff like that. Like, I I honestly couldn't tell that he was on it until at the end when, like, you know, they they kind of show him and stuff again. So, like... I felt he disappeared through the entire middle of the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, he wasn't really given anything yeah, to, to work exactly. on besides, you know, being in the, the group as a whole. Um, your your standout characters are, of course, you know, Brolin and Teller. I, beyond that, um, you know, there's a few other ones that, that stick out. But as a whole, they kind of melt into just yeah. an ensemble. And it doesn't help that they're all, you know mustached with <laughs> they all basically look, <laughs> they look very similar, similar. <laughs> yeah so I, this is like the one of the first films other than friday night lights where i thought taylor kitsch did did a really good job um but i i really like jennifer connelly in this movie um playing uh, uh josh brolin's wife um she's a uh basically a, a horse whisperer is the best way to put it um taking in uh, stray horses that are hurt and training uh, uh, people, uh, ranchers and stuff about horse um, health and safety. Um, I really liked her performance because that, that was a tough thing because she, she didn't have a ton of scenes. Um, all of them obviously were, almost all of them were with Josh Brolin. Um, but I thought she did an excellent job playing, playing the fiery but supportive wife of, of Josh Brolin's character. I'm having to look up how old she is right now because she looked amazing <laughs> um, in that film. Uh, so she was born in 1970. Okay, so she's she's not that old, but 46. still, so, yeah. 46, 47, yeah, 46. Um, she looks amazing in it. She's she's aging very nicely. Yeah. Kudos to her. <laughs> um, 
Um, all right, well, moving along, there is obviously no Georgia recognition factor here as it was filmed in New Mexico and we do not have desert in Georgia. <laughs> um, but on a scale of one to five on the official Atlas scale, what would you guys give this one? I'd give it an Atla, you know. This is a really, really solid movie. It's really um, heartwarming and really just good, good film. Yeah, I'm, I would give it a four also. I mean, I just, I liked it a lot. Um, it's just a well-told tale um, and uh, uh, really good performances all the way around. Oh, we all agree this week. That's nice. That never happens. I, I would also we give it a four. We got our own little brotherhood we do. <laughs> um, well, some fun facts for you guys about this one, because I know you, you love fun facts. Um, these are all kind of random. Um, this film was originally um, titled No Exit, which was based on a GQ article actually titled No Exit. Um, so Ken Nolan and Eric Singer wrote the screenplay based on that article. Uh, this is the first time Josh Brolin and Jeff Bridges have worked together since True Grit in 2010. And the first time Miles Teller and Andy McDowell have worked together since um, that re-release or remake of Footloose in 2011. I remember that movie. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> that was filmed in Georgia. It was. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't hate that movie. I know a lot of people, I, it wasn't good, it, but I didn't It tried it. too hard to be the original. It did. It did. But it had a few good songs in it that were redeeming qualities for me that may or may not be on my playlist, but I, I <laughs> probably shouldn't admit that, but <laughs> I just did, so. Um, well, cool. Fun fact. Um, fun fact. <laughs> um, well, we're not going to do a official review of The Snowman. I do want you guys to talk a little bit about that and the other releases <laughs> that are coming out this Friday. Yeah, really? The, dis the disaster that is the snowman. Yeah. <laughs> it's don't go see it. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, it's it's it takes place in Norway. Um, it's about a detective who's an alcoholic, um, and there's somebody that's killing women that are married, but they're and have children, but they're in an un unhappy marriage. And um, the killer leaves a snowman outside their residence or sometimes puts them on the body itself. Um, and uh, so uh, this detective, Harry Hole, played by uh, Michael Fassbender, um, starts investigating it with a, another investigator uh, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Um, here's the thing about this movie. First off is it takes place in Norway some of the actors did accents. Some of the actors had British accents. And some of the actors didn't have any accents at all. And so it's just a really weird movie to begin with because everybody's talking uh, just a weird language. That's the first thing. See, that, did, the second that didn't thing bother is, me at all. The only thing about that bothered me about me. the voices was Val Kilmer, who's in this well, movie. See, and so Val his Kilmer, voice Val, is dubbed. And it right, is so dubbed Val Kilmer, horribly. So you can really, right. really see. And it's... Is, right. That is distracting. Okay, there's a reason why Val Kilmer's voice was dubbed is because his tongue, he underwent, uh, he had cancer, and it was cancer of the throat, and his tongue at the time was um, enlarged, and um, he couldn't speak 
at all. That's why even if you look at him, it doesn't look like he's speaking the words totally. Um, so they had to dub him, but they it, because he wasn't speaking well, it was very hard for them to actually sync up the, the language, uh, the, the words with Val Kilmer's um, uh, mouth. Um, so yeah, it's, it's badly done. Um, my, my biggest problem is that, so it's called the snowman, and this guy leaves snowmen everywhere. And I don't remember any of the detectives talking about the snowman at all. I mean, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you remember anything like that, man? Well, I mean, um, well, the thing with Fassbender is that he's very much like a loner in this. Um, so, like, there's no, there's none of the whole, like, detective deciphering the things, which I felt was the biggest problem of the film was that it's not your traditional kind of, you know, detective thriller. And so like a lot of it is just jumping from one thing to the other and you're kind of just left to fill in the gaps yourself. So I mean, I honestly didn't think the whole snowman part was that big a part of it. So like yeah, they but weren't it was, discussing. But it was big to the but but the thing is that it's big to the the serial killer because he's doing a snowman for every person he kills he does a snowman and if he he also uses it to um basically bait um the the the, the detective that michael uh, fassbender plays um it's it, here's one thing like, about I mean, it like the re- and what there was nothing there to investigate go. though like oh they know they i mean like they know who it is they know that like there's only basically one killer in norway because I mean, like at the beginning, Michael Fassbender himself, he's like, "Yeah, I'm bored. Like, there are no cases for me." Because like he, I guess he exclusively investigates murder cases, and like there's the scene with him and like I think like the chief police officer where they're talking and like he's basically bored. So all he's been doing is basically drinking himself to death because he has no cases, and so it's not like it's not like they don't know who it is. Like they know it's this snowman well. guy. <laughs> And I don't, but I don't think he's drinking to death because of boredom. I'm thinking he's drinking because of the fact that he's no longer with the woman he loves, and he's no longer well, with the son. Well, yeah, there are a bunch who of, doesn't even know that he's the father. Well, yeah, there are a bunch. He's not the father. Yeah, no, he is. He's not. Yes, well, he is. This sounds like a winner. No. <laughs> well, let me. We don't. We don't know one who, thing. That reason why we don't know who the the father was. It's it's. Early on, when he has a conversation with his, his, I can't, I don't know if they ever married, but the the person that he's broken up with, she says, "This is not the time to tell him that you're you're his father." Really, I don't remember that. She says that in almost the very first conversation they have, when they're outside of the, of when the, they're outside of the of the art place that she works at. But here's the here's the deal, is that in an interview, um, the director Thomas Alfredson said that um, they, this film was a rush. Uh, it was greenlit very quickly. Um, it was supposed to have another director, and I think it was Martin Scorsese, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Because he's he's still the executive producer of the film. Right. So he dropped out, and so this this guy got hired literally weeks before production started so he had almost no prep time then they're shooting in norway in winter very bad conditions um and they got behind in the shooting schedule 
And when he got into the editing bay and started editing the movie, he realized that between 10 and 15% of the screenplay was not shot. Wow. That's why there's some holes <laughs> in this film. Well, that, uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like something I want to see. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, nobody should go see this film. <laughs> and apparently the book's really good. Yeah. Um, it's, it's based on, a, uh, I think it's a series of books um, that are very famous in Norway and actually have, the books have come across to America and, and have done well here. Well, uh, what other options do, uh, do people have this weekend? Well, there's a lot of stuff um, uh, coming out. Um, we've got, uh, well, you got the Medea one, of course. Right. Um, but there's a bunch of other stuff. I'm trying to look up my... Uh, my thing here. Hold on just one second when I get to it. Um, well, of course, you got Geostorm, yeah. right. which, as we said before, is not being screened for critics. Um, uh, so you've got uh, Mark Felt, uh, the man who brought down the White House, uh, which is based on a true story of uh, the guy that was number two of the FBI, Liam Nielsen, who um, was revealed um, just a few years ago that he was Deep Throat, the man that fed all the information to Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post that broke open the Watergate scandal. Um, you've got the movie Breathe, which is a true story of uh, Diana and Robin Cavendish. Um, that's Claire Foy and Andrew Garfield. And uh, Andrew Garfield's character um, at age 28, and they've only been married for, say, a couple of years. He's paralyzed from the neck down by polio, and their amazing life, which basically they didn't let the fact that he was tied to a machine that had to breathe for him. And this is we're talking about in the uh, 70, no, 60s, uh, when he got polio. Um, he was he literally traveled the world uh, with his wife, um, promoting that people that have uh, disabilities should be going out in public and should experience life and they, they will live much longer lives. A movie that uh, Matt and I both just absolutely love, The Florida Project, which is just an amazing film. It is not a happy film, I will warn you, um, but it's just a great film. And William Dafoe, who plays uh, the uh, a extended stay hotel, he's the manager. Um, and it it's basically takes uh, a a mother that Haley that lives there um, along with her daughter and they just try to live um, and it takes the hotel is right outside of Disney World. Um, you've got a documentary called uh, Take Every Wave: The Life of Laird Hamilton, which is about the big uh, big wave uh, surfer, and then you have an amazing film that everybody should go see called Lucky that stars Harry Dean Stanton. And it's just a beautiful film. It's one of the last films that Harry Dean Stanton did before he died. I think he could get an Oscar nomination for this film. And it's just a quiet, um, fun film. Um, it can be a little uh, depressing at times, but it's basically about a man who's 90 years old and he realizes that he's coming to the end of his life and he's got to make some decisions on how he wants to live the rest of his life. And then finally, you have, just in time for Halloween, you have Leatherface, which is the origin story of Texas Chainsaw Massacre's Leatherface. 
Well, cool. So, so you got quite a bit of choices. Yeah, a lot of choices. It still sounds like Only the Brave is probably the top pick. Yeah. I would say Only the Brave if you're going mainstream, and then Lucky if you really love indie film. It's just an amazing performance. I can't I can't uh, speak more highly of it than 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 that. Well, cool. Um, well, we also have a few other big things happening this weekend. Um, we have The Walking Dead Season 8 premiere, which is happening on Sunday night. So we'll be talking about that next week, of course. Um, if you do live in Atlanta, there is a premiere party that's happening, which is an event uh, that's a partnership between Walker Stalker and Atlanta Movie Tours. It is going to be 8 p.m. to 11 on Sunday night at Meehan's Atlantic Station location. So um, they're going to have cos- costume contests, um, all kinds of fun stuff surrounding The Walking Dead. So we have information. I know it's up on FanBolt. I think it's up on your site, too, right, Matt? Yeah, yep. It's all up on Shakefire, yep. along with a bunch of other stuff that, um, you know, Atlanta Movie Tours and Walker Stalker Con that they're doing. They're basically calling it the 12 Days of Walking Dead. So they're doing a lot of events leading up right. to Walker Stalker Con, which is next weekend, which we will all be yep. going to. We will all be there. Um, and what's what's exciting is that tonight, um, Project Cosplay, which will already be over by the time this is released, but tonight Project Cosplay is actually um, Walking Dead themed and going to be a part, or is a part of um, all of these events that are happening. So it's cool that uh, we have a little piece of it happening and we're watching we're watching it on friday night we're watching it tonight uh, <laughs> yeah premiere, right we'll be yeah yeah so we have a screener of it so i'm excited to to check it out um, and then i've also informed emma that we're watching a 1940s uh film noir film it's going to be quite the contrast <laughs> um, <laughs> but um we also have another event which i just realized is what is being set up across the street for me um, Matt, you want to talk a little bit about Taste of Atlanta? Yeah, yeah. Taste of Atlanta is going on this weekend. Um, it starts Friday, so today, and it runs through Sunday. And yeah, as Emma said, they're actually uh, this is going to be the first year it's going to be at the historic Fourth Ward Park. So that should be interesting. Usually they have it downtown um, by Georgia Tech, and they close off you know the Fifth Street Bridge and do it there. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the Fourth Ward Park um, does it. Um, I'm looking forward I, to it. I I try to go every year and uh, you know just taste all the different food. It's good to be able to you know try little samples of some of the restaurants you might not normally dine at, just because sometimes you know they're too expensive or just they're such a pain to get a reservation or something and so this is a nice nice little way of being able to sample some of their best stuff i think this is a really smart location for them um having it accessible to the belt line and people being able to walk to it and not having to to really um you know worry about parking or anything like that i I, I think it's going to be a smart location. It means that Pond City Market will be a total nightmare this weekend, but um, <laughs> but I'll I'll deal with that. Um, I'm excited to uh, to hear what you think. You don't happen to know if Staple House is going to be there, do you? Um, I can find out in like two seconds. That's um, probably the most um, painful one to get a, re- a reservation at Milana. They open. 
uh, reservations like a month out and then once they're gone you have to, to wait again and they have a bar which is first come first serve but it's uh, it's really difficult to eat. I still haven't eaten there and it's ranked you know one of the best if not someone named it the best restaurant in the country I can't remember the publication but um, it's supposed to be really really good mm. and I really really want to eat they, there <laughs> they will not be there yeah well the mystery continues <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll get there one day it'll happen um well cool i look forward to uh to hearing but the waffle house will be there waffle, hey man waffle don't 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 uh no. talk negative about the waffle house waffle house i'm not is talking amazing. i'm just not talking the fact that it's not it's it's on every street corner in atlanta it uh, is for everybody that's listening from out of town <laughs> um well cool um, so we'll have all of that for you guys next week. And uh, again, this is the Atlas Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. My name is Emma Loggins, Editor-in-Chief at FanBolt.com. And I'm Matt Rodriguez, the Owner-in-Chief Editor of ShakeFire.com. And I'm Mike McKinney, apparently responsible for Dennis Dugan, the director who directed all the really crappy Adam Sandler films. And I'm with Last One to Leave the Theater.com and ATLCW.TV. 